Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. And grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter 21. We're doing it. We are finishing the book of John today. Uh, you should clap for that. That's amazing. Five, five and a half months in, and we are finishing the book of John. And I don't, like, I don't mean that tongue-in-cheek. I think it's, it's amazing for us to have done this. In a culture that is driven by what can, how, how can you fix this quickly? Give me four steps. Give me five steps. How do I fix this? How do I feel that? That we have sat in the book of John for five and a half months is a miracle and it's a gift from the Lord. I pray that in studying uh, God's word this way, you've been able to see things in his word that you've never seen before. That when you read the Bible in context, it comes alive to us. We're gonna see more of that here this morning. As we get into John chapter 21, It is one of the more powerful passages of Scripture, if we would let it be. John, the author, has written this book, and he tells us in John chapter 20, in verse 30, he said, Jesus did many other signs that are not in this book. He says, listen, three and a half years, I can't fit it in 21 chapters. There's been a lot that's happened. But he says in verse 31, but these are written, these accounts, this perspective has been written by me, John, so that you, reader, you may believe, or some translations say, you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Christ. That word Christ means Messiah or anointed one. That you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He's the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, there are a number of scholars who believe John finished his book right here. He had finished it. um, He had had somebody proofread it. And he was done. But that the Spirit of God compelled him. There's something that he forgot. So some scholars would say he went back and wrote John 21. Because it wasn't done yet. Because proving to the world that Jesus is the Messiah hadn't been done yet. They needed one more account, one more story of the power of the Messiah. So he wrote John 21, just added it on later, tells us a bit more. We're going to pick up in John 21, and we're going to see the contrast between John the author and Peter. And we've heard a lot about Peter throughout this book. Uh, John wrote from his perspective, he and Peter were in the inner circle of Jesus. And so Peter uh, had a lot of life alongside of John. And a lot of life that was bold in front. You know people like that? Who like, they just live their lives in front of you. You just see all of it. Like there's nothing hidden. This is just who they are. So John has been witness to all of it. And he's written this account. uh, Primarily focused on Peter here in the last few chapters. But we're going to see something about Peter and John. They couldn't be more of an odd couple. Peter was a fisherman, didn't come from much, uh, worked his way up, worked and tried to to pinch pennies to try to provide for his wife and for his ailing mother-in-law. And and he did the best he could. He's a hard worker. He's gruff. He, uh, He thinks he speaks before he thinks. 
Um, he is the ready, fire, aim kind of guy. This is who Peter is. And then you've got John. John comes from money. John comes from a, a better standard of living. He's a fisherman, but it's a different kind of fishing probably that he did based on what we know. And, uh, but he's just a good guy. Like he's loving and he's kind. He doesn't speak ill words of people. He takes his time in making decisions. And Jesus has paired these two men together along with James in his inner circle. And we're gonna see that contrast here. So John wrote his book so that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Because what happens uh, when somebody passes on, when somebody moves, uh, moves on or moves away, uh, the stories of that person linger, but the perspective and the truth gets twisted a bit, doesn't it? You hear stories about people, but you're like, I don't, that doesn't sound humanly possible. You're telling me in high school you ran 7,000 yards in one game? Yeah, true story. No, it's not. Uh, but you've got a Messiah that people, the Jews, had been desperate for to come. And they've been waiting and waiting and waiting. So they had built this idea of who he was going to be. He's going to be a warrior who would overthrow the oppressive Roman government. He was going to dethrone kings and, and principalities and powers. And, and he was going to be mighty in stature. He would be a general who led his people in, uh, in war. He was going to be the champion of all champions, and he was going to be strong and mighty, and he was uh, going to act strongly against those who opposed him. But what we meet is this Jesus of Nazareth, who doesn't come from uh, a royal line at that port, part, point in time, who isn't strong and mighty in stature who isn't seeking to overthrow governments, who isn't causing uh, a rebellion and an uprising in such an overt way as to draw attention to himself. That's not who he is. And so John has tried to lay out, this man actually is the Messiah. I think we can relate to that. Um, we all have an idea of who Jesus is, and in particular, who God is. Based on upbringing, based on experiences that we've had, we all have ideas about who God is and how he treats us. And for many of us, what's been built into our culture, what's been built into our very essence, our DNA, is that if you're good, God loves you. If you do the right things, then God is there for you. But if you don't, and the moment you cross that line, he's after you. We too have built a misconception of the Messiah that John has worked for 20 chapters to correct in us. We're gonna pick up here, Jesus has been crucified and he's resurrected. We're 10 to 12 days after that, we don't really know. After that, Jesus has appeared to his disciples a handful of times. He's um, walked the road to Emmaus. He has, uh, we read last week, he, he met Mary Magdalene at the tomb. Mary ran back to wake up Peter and John to tell them, I don't know what's happened, but the body of Jesus is gone. Peter's most likely sleeping because Peter's most recent memory of Jesus was the third time that Peter denied even knowing Jesus. He caught the eyes of our Savior in the middle of the courtyard. As the rooster crowed, Jesus fixed his eyes on Peter. And so Peter has tried to do everything he can to forget what has most recently happened. Peter was the man who said, I'll go to my death for you. These guys, like these 11, they're weak. But me, I'm strong. And I'll fight for you. I would never let them take you. And yet he denies Jesus three times. 
Peter probably hasn't slept well in 10 days. If you've ever been in that situation where you've, um, your world has come crashing down because of you. You have a hand in the chaos that your family is walking in. Have you ever experienced that? The pain your spouse is feeling, the chaos in your home is because of you. He hasn't slept well in 10 days. He probably hasn't eaten. He's lost weight. He doesn't know what the next move is for him. This is where we pick up in these next 10 days. So let's look at verse one of John 21. After this, so after the resurrection, after Jesus had revealed himself to the, Messiah, as, uh, to the disciples as the risen Savior, after meeting with them, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. You need to circle that or highlight that. Um, it's tough in Scripture because there are bodies of water, and depending on where you lived, you called it something different. The Sea of Tiberias has two other names in Scripture, the Sea of Galilee and the Lake of Gennesaret. It's all the same body of water. And depending on where you lived, it changed what you called that body of water. So Jesus reveals himself to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, by the Sea of Galilee, by the Lake of Gennesaret. And John says he revealed himself in this way. This is the first time John has said something like this. What John is telling us is, pay attention to this. How this goes down is important. Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Gennesaret. Remember Mark chapter 16, um, an angel had appeared to Mary Magdalene and at the tomb, the empty tomb, and, and told Mary, go back in Mark 16, verse seven, and said, go and tell the disciples and Peter to meet me in Galilee. Remember that in Mark chapter 16. Uh, Peter probably wouldn't have gone if it wasn't for this. But what's interesting is that in Luke chapter five, when Jesus calls the disciples for the first time, Luke five, verses one through three, the very place he calls his disciples to follow him is at the lake of Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias. Jesus has sent his disciples back to where it all began. And if you don't read the Bible in context, you miss it, don't you? This is beautiful what's happening. You're gonna see more of this, but he calls them back to the beginning. He brings them back to this very sea on which he called them. Verse two, so here's who's there. Simon Peter, Thomas, who is called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two others of his disciples were there together. When he called his disciples in Luke chapter five, uh, Peter was there, Andrew was there, and James and John were there. They know this area. Verse three, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. Now, it doesn't seem like a big deal, but you gotta remember who is speaking and what he is saying. If I were to stand before you and would say, hey, uh, this summer I'm taking my talents to South Beach, it wouldn't bother any of you. Okay, go on vacation to Miami, that's fine. But if I'm LeBron James and I'm leaving Cleveland and I call a press conference because I matter that much, and I call a press conference to tell the world that I'm changing my job and I'm taking my talents to South Beach, what I'm saying is, as a free agent, I'm signing with the Miami Heat. Who says it matters? 
Peter says, I am going fishing. Now, I could tell Meredith, I'm going fishing, and she'd be like, for real? <laughs> Since when have you gone? You mean you're going to the grocery store to get salmon? Is that what you're doing? <laughs> um, but Peter says it. Luke chapter five, verses one through three, where is Peter when Jesus calls him? He is fishing. He is a fisher man. This is Peter's profession. Peter is saying more than, hey, I'm gonna go just hang out with the boys on the boat. What he's saying is, this isn't working for me anymore. I'm going back to what I used to be. I'm going back to what I know. We know Peter. Peter's that guy who, um, he, patience isn't quite virtuous to him yet. It's been 10 days, and he's seen Jesus a handful of times, but that lingering memory is still there, and, and he's wondering, will Jesus ever, will he ever love me again? It's been 10 days. He hasn't said a word about it, so... I might as well just go back to fishing. He knows this sea, and so he takes the boat back out to go fishing. Peter is walking in 10 days of shame, but it's, it's kind of been his life, hasn't it? His life has been claims of being something only to prove that he is not that thing by his very actions. Feels like it's the last straw for Peter, and so he moves to work. He moves to busyness and distraction to wall out the shame from the past. Can you relate to that? There's shame from the past that creeps in. So we get busy and we get distracted to try to wall out the memory of that shame. Now, Peter's uh, not going to sell heroin. He's just gonna go fishing, right? Like he, he's not the worst person in the world. He's not, he's not going to extremes. He's just, he's just not going to where God wants him to be. I'm just, I'm just gonna be over here fishing. I'm going to back to what I know because I can't handle the in-between. So it's not a deep dive into addiction or depression, but this is a step away from what God wants him to do. I believe in the room today, there are many of us who, this is us. There's something that lingers, some pain, some wound, some question, some shame that has pushed us I was like, yeah, yeah, but I'm, it's not like I'm, but you're just, you're working a lot. You are chasing another profession. You are uh, pursuing something else. You're trying to numb out the pain of that shame. And this is what Peter is doing. So his friends in verse three say to him, we will go with you. Now, I don't know if it's because they're worried about him. I don't know if it's because they've also given up. Um, but these friends go to follow him. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Isn't that sweet? Peter can't even do that right anymore. I used to be good at this. He caught nothing. This is the sovereign hand of God on Peter's life. You understand that God's in charge of the fish in the sea too. And if God wanted Peter to catch fish, he would have caught fish. And he would have caught a lot of them. But he goes out, they go out all night, and they catch nothing. When we allow our shame and the guilt of the past to push on us in the present, and we move away from what God has for us in our lives, in his grace, he will reveal to us the faulty premise by which we're operating, which is that I can do something outside of Jesus. No, you can't. 
and in his love, he will chase you down. So he's working with Peter. He's coming after Peter, and he's doing so by complicating Peter's plans. Have you ever felt that way? Like nothing is going right? This is what God is doing in grace. He's not allowing Peter to catch a thing. I wonder if many of us have gotten to the place of realizing the way I'm living my life just isn't working. I thought I would be better off here. I thought I could figure this out and numb out the pain and, and forget about the wound, forget about the shame and just pursue this thing. And if I pursued this thing, then that money would make up for whatever loss I'm feeling here emotionally. But what you've learned, if you're honest with yourself, is that's not working either because you too have caught nothing all night long. But then pay attention to what John says and how he says it. Verse four, just as day was breaking, they fished all night long. You don't fish all night if you're just gonna go out with the boys. Peter's trying to prove something. Can you picture him? Casting net after net after net, getting more and more angry, more and more frustrated with what's happening. Do it again, cast it again. He throws it out, nothing. Reels it back in, more fresh. One more time, throws it out, still nothing. Maybe now, again, nothing. Try this area, try this area, nothing. All night long, no fish, nothing in the net. And as day breaks, John tells us, Jesus stood on the shore. Question is, why did Jesus wait till morning? It feels cruel, doesn't it? He, he surely could have had him catch fish by 11. But he waits till daybreak. Because you know what happens at daybreak? Roosters crow at daybreak. Peter has a memory etched into his soul of a daybreak moment. And it will linger with him the rest of his life. Whenever he hears a rooster crow. And so Jesus, in his grace, waits till that exact moment. And he's on the shore. They've caught nothing. And he's on the shore, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus says to them, children, do you have any fish? Now, some of your translations might say friends. Some say brothers there. Um, that's probably not most accurate. The, the idea here is the, uh, the idea of a little boy. So Jesus says, hey, little boys, which is not what, I mean, you're a fisherman, right? Like, that's not what you want to hear. Hey, cutie, how's that going? And uh, in the ESV, it says, have you caught any fish? The, the Greek translation would probably better read, you haven't caught anything, have you? Which assumes a negative. So Jesus knows. He says, hey, hey, little ones. Uh, you haven't caught anything tonight, have you? And then look at their answer. And they answered him, no. <laughs> no. You idiot, no. Do I look like I've caught anything? Are we pulling fish in? No. But the answer is just simply, no. They haven't caught anything. So verse six, Jesus says to them, well, why don't you cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Now listen, I'm sure John didn't have everything added here. He just told us he didn't. 
I can imagine Peter had a few choice words here. Oh, the other side? Like, I haven't tried that yet. I've been here all night just using the left side of the boat. You want me to try your, your, the right side? Okay. They go back out. They cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Now, if you've paid attention and you've read the Bible in context, you realize this is not the first time Jesus has performed this miracle, is it? You've heard this story before. Do you know when you heard this story? Back in Luke chapter five, when Jesus first calls the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Gennesaret. Jesus calls them back to this place where it all began, and he performs the same miracle in front of them. And they haul it in. In Luke chapter five, Peter falls on his knees before Jesus and says, get away from me, for I am a sinful man. And Jesus' response is, stand up. I know you are, but I'm gonna make you a fisher of men. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Jesus is recreating an invitation for Peter. I know you think you've blown it. I know you think you're too far gone, but I wanna start again. And I've called you back here, and I'm gonna do this thing so that you will know that I am the Messiah. So they can't even bring uh, the fish in. Verse seven, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and this is John, this is powerful. John says to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. We all need friends like John. John isn't the utter failure. John isn't the one who uh, speaks before he thinks. John isn't the one who makes claims and then can't back it up. John's the one nestled against Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. This is John. And yet John, in the moment of Peter's greatest failure, doesn't hurl accusations, doesn't, doesn't pile on with the blame, doesn't kick him when he's down. But when Jesus shows up, John says, Peter, he's here for you. It's him. It's the Lord. It's the Lord, Peter. He's here. It's like John picks up what's happening before Peter does. Because of Peter's shame, he's, just, he's not picking up what's happening. And John says, it is the Lord. Nathaniel had a fig tree, and Matthew had a task collector's booth. Peter has a ship on the Sea of Galilee, and John knows it. This is for you, Peter. This is yours. This is your calling. This was yours. This is your miracle. He's your Lord. It's the Lord. And because of John's great love for Peter and his friendship of pointing out Jesus, Peter put on his outer garment, which sounds like a weird thing to do before you jump into the water, but he does. And John tells us he threw himself into the sea. Can you, I want you to picture that in your mind. He doesn't dive in. He doesn't pencil in. He just flails into the water. It's not pretty. It's anything but. It's not proper. It doesn't look right. 
It doesn't sound right, doesn't use the right words, doesn't say the right things, isn't wearing the right outfit. He just hurls himself into the sea. In these moments for us, when the Lord makes himself known to us in the midst of our darkest day, he's not asking for a pretty dive. Just asking you to be honest. And Peter hurls himself into the sea. Then John adds this detail for us in verse eight. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. For they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. You pick up what John is saying? We just rowed a few times, and we were there. Peter could have just waited. And yet Peter swims, verse 9, and when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. A lot of fires in scripture. There's fires of bushes. There's fires in the tabernacle. There are uh, fires set by other people. Um, There's only two instances that a charcoal fire is mentioned. It's here in John chapter 21 and earlier in John chapter 18, verses 17 through 18, where Peter denies knowing Jesus for the first time. Peter would have continued to be haunted by the crow of a rooster every sunrise. He would have been continued to have been haunted by the smell of the Sea of Galilee, knowing that that's where it started and he blew it. And he would always be haunted by the sound of a crackling charcoal fire in a courtyard. See what Jesus is doing? He's bringing him back. He took him to the place of his calling, and now he's taking him back to the place of his sin. And this is where it hurts for us. But he brings him into a charcoal fire that he has in place. He has fish laid out on it, which is interesting because Jesus must have caught fish in the middle of the night. He already has fish, doesn't need theirs. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard, remember, because he was not aboard, so he had to go aboard, and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And you're going to ask, well, what is the significance of 153? No one knows. It's just a lot of fish. And although there were so many, the net was not torn, which if you compare that to the miracle in Luke chapter 5, there's a whole other sermon there. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew that it was the Lord. Jesus invites them to breakfast. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so also with the fish. Now this was the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Jesus has never called Peter this. And so if Peter had missed the cues at first, he's certainly not missing this. It's like when your mama calls you by your first, middle, and last name. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, scholars are divided as to what the these could be. Um, it, it could be the fish. He's saying, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than going fishing? Do you love me more than your old life? 
Some say he's asking, do you love me more than these disciples? I can lean that way because I wonder if what he's pointing at is, hey, you've made some claims before, haven't you? That they'll all fall away, but you're the one that's gonna stand secure. I just wanna make sure, are you still saying you love me more than they do? But he asked them, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? You picking up what's happening? Three denials by, by a charcoal fire, and Jesus gives him a chance now. Three questions. Do you love me? Feed my lamb. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Tend my sheep. Now, depending on your upbringing and your own experiences, this can seem very cruel of Jesus, doesn't it? Like at first glance, it just feels like Jesus is just rubbing Peter's face in it. You remember that fire? Smell this. Oh, how many times? Three times. Did you deny me three times? I got three questions for you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, you know, you, you, you know that I love you. Well, it didn't look like it a few nights ago. Are you sure? Let's try it again. Do you love me? Yes, you know. It's, one more time, Peter, because it sure seems like over the course of your life, you have refused to actually love me. Do you love me? Doesn't that feel cruel? Many of us, that's how we view God. That's the picture we have. That's the voice that echoes in our minds about our sin. So why would you run to him? Like you don't have enough shame. You don't have enough guilt. You already don't feel good enough to be sitting in a church today. What makes you think that you could run to him if that's who God is? Well, I have good news for you. That is not who God is. It's not who he is. This is tender. Ben Stewart, a pastor in D.C., says that if Jesus wanted to shame Peter, he would point backward. Instead, Jesus points Peter forward. Do you love me, Peter? I know you do. Then go feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yeah, I know. I know you do. Then let's move forward. Peter, do you love me? I know. I know you do. Go tend to my lambs. Do you hear the difference? John's trying to make you and me understand this is the Messiah. This is how saviors talk. This is how the Son of God speaks to people in the midst of their darkest day when the wounds are still fresh. See, Jesus is recreating this moment of Peter's sin so that he could redeem and restore him. Not to penalize him, not to punish him, not to make him relive the sin, but to restore him. Because for the rest of Peter's life, a crowing rooster on a sunrise, the smell of the Sea of Galilee and a net full of fish, the sound of a charcoal fire and the smell of it would always be triggers of his shame. And Jesus is saving his life and he's saying, it's not about your shame now, this is how I saved you. You have new memories of these very things. What a gift 
of a loving, gracious Messiah. But Jesus does have to address it, doesn't he? He's not gonna sweep it under the rug. That's not love. So he has to address it. He has to touch the wound. Jesus will touch your greatest wounds, not to hurt you, but to heal you. Do you hear me? He will. Not to hurt you, not to rub your face in it, to set you free from your shame, to save you, not to shame you, to heal you, not to hurt you. About four years ago, um, Case and our middle uh, child got bit by a spider, and we didn't know, and over time, we just noticed something on his leg, and it was red, and it was getting hot, and so we took him to the doctor, and the doctor said, yeah, this is, this is a spider, but I don't know what kind, but be a brown recluse, I don't know, so we're gonna have to deal with it. And so um, he has like an outpatient surgery, they dig it out. I mean, it started as a bite, now it's a quarter size hole in my four-year-old's leg. And it begins to heal, and it's just not healing right, so we tried to do a bunch of things to heal it, and, and the way that his wound began to heal was that the internal part of his skin healed faster than it was closing up. So he's got uh, something protruding out of this wound. And every night, we'd have to pin Kaysen on the ground to pull things out of his wound, to pull strips out, to um, clean him out, to debride, to do whatever we needed to do to clean him. And it was painful every night. I wept, Meredith wept, Kaysen wept. And there's this moment where it's not healing right. So we call the doctor, and the doctor says, yeah, I'm gonna refer you to somebody, and so... Up in Atlanta, we go, and the doctor says, yeah, we're gonna have to deal with this. I'm okay, so it's just me at that point. Meredith's at work, and I'm like, all right, how do we deal with this? He says, I'm gonna have to burn that off. I'm like, come on, like, he's been through enough. Is there anything else you can do? No, because if this happens, there's infection, and it just gets worse. I'm like, okay. So we take Kaysen back to this room, and the doctor gets everything ready, and he um, he's sterile and gets everything sterile in case, and it's just, he can't. As a dad, you have that moment where you're like, what? I know this has to happen, and it's gonna hurt, but it has to. Like, the pain's gonna yield itself to health, and I have to, and Kaysen's flailing, and I lay my body on top of my four-year-old. So the doctor can burn it out of his wound. He's crying. I'm crying. The doctor's pretending not to cry because he's tough and paid for this. And I have this moment of like, all right, Lord. Even if it hurts. So does he take you to the place of your sin? Yeah. Yeah because he loves you and he wants to heal you. So yeah, like are there songs that remind you? Are there smells that remind you? Yeah. Do things begin to feel familiar and you just want to forget it and go fishing? Uh-huh. You'll never be healed that way. You'll never, you might be forgiven, but you'll never be restored. 
So in his love, Jesus is touching the greatest wound of Peter's life. Still fresh, still painful. But without this, with every rooster's cry, every sunrise, every charcoal fire, every time he stepped into a boat on the Sea of Galilee, it triggered the shame of his past. But Jesus has recreated this moment to call Peter forward. Now the charcoal fire means something else. This is where I was restored, not where I failed. Sea of Galilee is the place where Jesus met me again and he forgave and restored me, not a reminder of what life used to be. The sound of a rooster is no longer a trigger of my pain and my shame and sin from my past. It's a reminder that his mercies are new every morning. Jesus touches our wounds not to hurt us, but to heal us. This had to be dealt with in order to put it to death. This is why we begin services with confession and repentance. It's a gift of the Lord. And you wanna know why Jesus could do this for Peter? He didn't dismiss his sin. He forgave it. You wanna know why Jesus could? Because he already paid for it. Jesus knew. He saw it happen. Even if he's not deity, he saw it happen, but he knows. On the cross, in Jesus' mind, I'm sure was Peter, and was you, and was me, and because Jesus paid for it, he can restore you. So he does. But he tells Peter, feed my sheep. He's reminding Peter, listen, Peter, my people still need you. They need you, Peter. Don't grow so self-absorbed in your past failure that you miss the work in front of you. I've prayed for you that when you fail, you might return and strengthen your brothers. These lambs, these baby sheep, they need you. Eyes up, Peter. We're going forward. Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. And I love how simple this is. Peter was the guy who had the big dreams. Peter's gonna write books and go on speaking tours. And Peter's the guy who goes to camp and makes a declaration the last night of camp. I know I've sinned in the past, but I'm giving my life to Jesus and I will never sin again. Yes, you will. Peter's the guy who says, okay, I know what was in my past, but I'm, 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 gonna, I'm gonna go to seminary. I'm gonna, um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna learn Swahili and I'm gonna go to Africa. That's what I'm gonna do. All Jesus needs Peter to do is feed a sheep. That's all. He just needs simple obedience. Then Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. This sounds weird. Here's what Jesus is saying. Hey, in the future... Your life's gonna be so different that you're going to die for me. You denied me? Listen, in the future, you're stronger than you were 10 days ago. After saying this, he says to Peter these two words that he heard three and a half years ago. Follow me. Peter's still not there yet, so he turns in verse 20 and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is John following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during supper. And he said to him, 
Oh, it said, so that said, Lord, who is it that will betray you? Verse 21. And when Peter saw John, he said to Jesus, well, Lord, what about this man? Because Peter's still not quite getting it. He's trying to deflect. Okay, that's for me. But what about John? That's what I really want to know. Why doesn't he have to go through this? Because isn't that the question for us? For those of us like Peter, isn't that the question? Why me? I don't want to do that. Like, I never wanted to sin against the Lord. I don't want to break his heart and hurt my family. I don't, that's not who I am. Why did I have to? What about her? What about him? And then Jesus says, if it's my will that he remain until I come back, what is that to you? You must follow me. Jesus says, no, no, we're not talking about them. This is for you. This is for you. Peter was forgiven at the cross, but he was restored at the beach. I need you to hear this from us. As a church, we believe in restoration. And we will practice it until God closes our doors. You are not too far gone. Whatever shame and sin from your past has lingered and has had power over your present, would you read John 21? You are forgiven. And you can be restored. I don't know how many of you in the room today can relate to Peter. Maybe you've lived a lot of your life walking in the shame of a sin or a series of sins or a behavior, continual behavior. Maybe today it's still present and you can't fight it. You can't beat the addiction. You still look at it late at night when no one's home. You still go to these places and, and you're still um, doing this with these people. Jesus met Peter on the beach. And he restored his ministry. You are not too far gone. Maybe what's happening for you is there's this weird familiar feeling that happens every now and again. It's almost a deja vu feeling where Jesus is calling you back to some memories. And he calls you back to your Sea of Galilee, calls you back to where you were first called, calls you back to where you first began to follow him. And you walk that journey, but then the moment he begins pressing on your wound, you're out. It feels cruel and unkind. James would tell us to let patience have her work. Patience, finish her work, that you might be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Are you here this morning with sin and shame from your past clouding your present? I have good news for you. The resurrected Savior wants to have breakfast with you too. And you can be restored. You can be redeemed. You are not too far gone. There's nothing that clouds the promises God has made for you. you bow your heads and close your eyes? I don't know where you find yourself today, but I want to speak to two people in the room today. I want to speak to Peter. Those of you this morning who feel like Peter, who feel like you're just too far gone. You've done too much, you've said too much, and there's shame that runs your life today. 
So nothing seems to work. You've gone back to fishing. You've tried to busy yourself and distract yourself and try to wall out the shame and to wall out the pain. And some of us this morning, you've done it by serving in the church. And so you're just gonna work harder. You're gonna give more. You're going to serve on more teams and you're trying to wall out the shame from your past. And if you're honest, what you would say today is it's not working. It's not working. Jesus wants to have breakfast with you today. He's gonna press on your wound, not to hurt you, but to heal you. There's some in the room today who maybe that's not your story. Maybe your story is more like John. But you've gone fishing with somebody's. You're with some Peter in your life. And there's a pride that's risen up in you that makes you feel like he deserves this. No, he deserves the pain and the shame he's feeling. He should have never. I would have never. I want to call you to point out Jesus to Peter. It's the Lord, John says to Peter. I don't know where you find yourself this morning, but as Brandon plays and we have elders and staff ready to pray with you, I wanna, I wanna ask you this. First of all, if you're like Peter, you can numb it out the rest of your life and completely miss what God has for you. I wanna ask you this morning, if you are like Peter and there's shame from sin in the past or in the present and you've tried everything and you can't wall it out, you can't deceive and distract and busy yourself enough away from it, I'm gonna ask you, seek the Lord in these moments. I'm gonna invite you to the altar today. There's nothing special about this altar. But there's something that happens when our bodies move in response to the call of God. And you can come up here today and you can have breakfast with your Savior. And he's pressing on wounds and there's things that remind you of your sin from the past, but you can come here. You can be prayed with if you'd like that. You can just come and weep and pray yourself. I don't care. But I wanna invite you to that. Maybe for the Johns in the room, you need to nudge your friend and say, hey, this is the Lord. It's time. It's time. I'll go with you. Maybe there are some in the room today who you need to come forward and confess that you have grown prideful towards the Peters in your life. And you need to confess that here. <laughs> because as for this church, we will be a church that restores to the power of God and the finished work of Jesus on the cross and the empty tomb. These things have been written that you might believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I'm gonna pray. I'm just gonna let Brandon play for a little bit. It might be awkward for a little while, but I, I do. I wanna challenge you to respond to the call of the Lord. Don't wait. God, we love you.
And we believe that you love us. We are your children called by your name. And the enemy wants nothing more than to put us on the sidelines. He wants nothing more than to remind us of our past, to remind us of our failure. And at every turn, it seems like he does. There are many of us this morning in the room who have tried to busy ourselves to numb the pain of the past. It's worked for a season, but right now, God, it's not working anymore. But we don't know if we can trust you. We don't know if we can come to you. It's not the story that we've been told. Father, through the power of your spirit in the room today, would you make known that you are the Christ? You are the Son of God. The Son of God has compassion in his eyes. The Son of God has restoration in his hands. The Son of God has a boat on the Sea of Galilee. The Son of God has a net full of fish. The Son of God has a sunrise. The Son of God has a charcoal fire to redeem the pain of the past and make it beautiful for the present and for the future. Take our ashes and make them beauty today. God, I'm begging on behalf of people in the room today that you would set them free. Whatever it takes. Press on the wound in love. Restore and redeem that they might declare to the world that you are who you say you are. That you love us. Oh, how you love us. Lord, have your way today. In Jesus' name.